The reading is taken from Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 41, and can be found on pages 1013 of the Church Bible. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they they did not understand what he meant, and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop, because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name, because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness, for your kindness, and for just how much you want to be known. So we pray that this morning you would humble us so that we listen to what the Lord Jesus has to say, and that we would follow wherever he leads. In Jesus' name, amen. About uh, Mr. Silly. Uh, I can lend this to you later if you, um, you know, make sure you give it back because it's an important one, but I can lend it to you. Mr. Silly, if you're not familiar with, uh, with the particular book, uh, he lives in nonsense land. And the idea with nonsense land is that everything is as silly as can be. So uh, the trees are pink, the grass is blue, the worms quack like ducks. Uh, in nonsense land, they have an annual competition for the silliest idea of the year. So uh, previous winners, the inventor of a car with square wheels, a man who wallpapered his house on the outside. And uh, I don't want to spoil the book, but in the end... The king of nonsense land awards the prize to Mr. Silly for the very, very silly idea of painting the leaves on a tree green. And he says, whoever heard of a green tree? And it's all very silly. It's a good book. I I recommend it to you. Uh, Now, the reason I'm bringing that up now is because very often I think the ways of Jesus, the ways of his kingdom seem completely silly. They seem completely backwards, they don't make sense, they're they're seeing the wrong way round, like the birds in nonsense land who who bark and fly backwards. Jesus doesn't do what we expect him to do, he doesn't say what we expect him to say, and so following him doesn't look like it makes any sense at all. Until we get this kind of thing clear in our minds, we aren't going to do it, we aren't going to follow him, we're just going to dismiss it as nonsense. Or, we will do it wrong. We'll just keep doing whatever makes sense to us, but isn't actually what he's calling us to do. So in this passage that we're looking at this morning, uh, really the aim is to turn us all the right way up again, 
by confronting us with Jesus, by confronting us with the dying king and his upside-down kingdom. That's what we're learning about with the Lord Jesus, that he is a dying king with an upside-down kingdom. Following him looks silly because Jesus himself seems sometimes to be nonsensical. Who ever heard of a dying king? I mean, recent history, very recent, shows us if you are the monarch and you die, your reign is over. But Jesus seems to begin with his death. He seems to make it as if that's the point. That is sort of nothing illustrating how bonkers his approach is by just how committed he is to dying and to talking about it all the time. So verse 30 of our passage, he, he takes the disciples away for some intensive training. It's just going to be him and them. And what does he want to teach them? Well, it's verse 31. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. He's saying, I am a king. I am going to die. Now, Mark doesn't record very much of Jesus' teaching. He normally whips along at quite a feral clip, and he summarises, and he moves on. And so when he does record specific things Jesus says, we really need to take notice, especially when, like this bit, it's a repeat. He's already said this. If you look back across the page, chapter 8, verse 31, he's just said exactly the same thing. And if you were to flick ahead to chapter 10, verse 33, he will say exactly the same thing again. We get this three times. <coughs> Because it is so important. I know it sounds crazy to say, but I am a dying king. The Son of Man is going to be killed. I said, the Son of Man is going to be killed. I'll say it again. And, and it's like they can't quite get it through their thick heads because it sounds so wrong. It sounds so upside down. We've talked about this before, but how, how the Son of Man, that, that is... Jesus' name that he calls himself most of the time. Not just a nickname he made up, but that he borrows from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7 there's this vision of four beasts, four evil earthly kings. And God overthrows those kings and makes the Son of Man the ultimate king. It says this of the Son of Man, he was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That is who he's claiming to be every time he says he's the son of man. And so he keeps saying the son of man is going to be killed. And that's what makes no sense. How is his kingdom never going to be destroyed if the king is I think that's the confusion in verse 32 where it says they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. The whole thing just does not compute. They can't see it. They can't see that Jesus' death is how he's going to establish that kingdom. That is by dying and rising again that he wins for himself a people and a kingdom. So he's saying very clearly when we get to Jerusalem, this is what is going to happen. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be executed. But that is not going to be a horrible mistake. That is not going to be the end of the dream. I'm telling you in advance so you will know it's on purpose. I'm telling you multiple times 
so that you will know it's important. Have we grasped that? Have we grasped that? That dying king is not an oxymoron like a sort of a square circle. He is the king who came to die in order to establish that kingdom. And that kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Any kingdom that begins like that, that begins with the leader laying down his life and behaving like a servant, is going to set itself up to be very, very different. You can't have a king like that and have it not impact his citizens, his people. And the rest of the passage is, is showing us how upside down it is. What it will look like for us to follow a king like that. And it is upside down. For example, in Jesus' kingdom, greatness is serving. He sort of gets these two ideas and flips them upside down. So there's no greatness is serving. That isn't normal. That isn't how it is normally. He's saying that greatness is not found in throwing your weight around. Greatness is not in being naturally impressive. What makes people great is serving others. That isn't what we think a lot of the time. And that isn't what the disciples thought. As if to prove they don't understand Jesus, they start arguing. He's teaching them about his death as they go along, and on that same journey, they're bickering. And Jesus says, what are, you, what are you arguing about? What are you arguing about on the road? And everyone starts looking at their shoes and feeling a bit sheepish, because they know it's stupid. They know they shouldn't be talking about this, because it's nonsense. But verse 34 says they kept quiet, because on the way, they'd argued about who was the greatest. It's almost funny, isn't it? Jesus tells them he's going to die, and they respond by putting themselves into a league table to work out who's the best. Somehow that makes more sense to them than what Jesus is saying. He's saying the Son of Man must be killed. Right. Right. Which one of us is the best? I mean, I know none of us understand anything he's talking about, but which of us is least clueless? Who is, who is the favourite? If we made top trumps of the disciples, which one of us is going to be the best part? I mean, it's such an inappropriate way to react to this. His dead friend, their mentor, is about to die. Of all the times to have this conversation, straight after they failed in casting the evil spirit out of that boy. Do you remember that from the last time we were looking at Mark's Gospel? Who's the greatest? Straight after that, there's obviously none of us, but who's, we are quite great, aren't we? We can't do the basic things he tells us to do. And, and when Jesus comes back, he says, yeah, the reason you didn't do it is because you didn't even pray about it. So they are brilliant disciples, aren't they? They don't even know you're supposed to pray. Which one of us is the greatest? They have no reason to be so proud. At least when Muhammad Ali said, I am the greatest, he was a pretty good boxer. These guys are rubbish. And so, so Jesus sits them down patiently and goes over the basics again. He goes over again what kind of king he is and what sort of kingdom it is and how he needs to be different. So verse 35, sitting down, and they're walking along, and they're walking along, what are you talking about? Right, stop, sit down. <laughs> Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last 
and the servant of all. That's how it is in his upside-down kingdom. That's how greatness is going to be shown, not by beating other people, but by serving other people. So if you want to be first, you need to put yourself last. That isn't how it is out there in the world, is it? People get to the front by pushing to the front, by elbowing other people out of the way, to get yourself ahead. But with Jesus, the way up is down. He's not looking for impressive people. He's looking for people who are happy to serve. Now, is that what we look for? Is that what impresses us? You say, they are so great. I want to be like them when I grow up. They serve. Or are we arguing about which one of us is the best? One thing that's interesting here, I think, is that Jesus doesn't sort of slap down all talk of greatness. Wanting to be great isn't entirely bad. It's where and when and how we want to be great. That is the issue. In whose eyes do we want to be seen as great? If we would like to be famously great here and now and have everybody give us a big round of applause in the eyes of the world, that's not the way to be really great, Jesus says. If we want to be really great, we will serve. Because we're not trying to be great now. We're not trying to have everybody else think we're great. We're interested in what God thinks is good. I think Jesus has got two kingdoms in mind. He's got his kingdom, he's got the world's kingdom, and they are opposed to each other. So if you go up in one, you're going down in the other. If you go forward in one, you're going backwards in the other. And we need to choose which kingdom we're part of, which kingdom we care about. So if our whole life is all about trying to climb the world's ladder, it's trying to have it all here and now and have everybody think we're wonderful, we are saying, this is the kingdom we belong in. This is the one. So we're going up. This is why I want to go up here. But it's saying, well, then you're obviously not interested in this. But when we're willing to take ourselves down a peg or two here, we're saying, actually, no, in heaven, that's where we belong. We put ourselves last here and now to be first there and then. We're happy to wait. Happy to wait for greatness. We're waiting for a greatness that is greater, that is longer lasting. If we prioritise Jesus over everything the world offers, we will serve, and we won't if we don't. Because we will see, as far as Jesus is concerned, greatness is serving. When we serve, we are going low. We are humbly caring for other people. We're putting them first at cost to ourselves. And when we do that, when we're willing to go low like that, instead of insisting other people do that for us, that shows where our heart is, isn't it? That our, that our heart is with him. Serving is what makes people great. And that is why Jesus is the absolute greatest, isn't it? Because there is nobody else who served like him. Nobody else who, who can take the highest place because nobody else has ever sunk down so low to have the Son of Man, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, come into the world and not be great, to not be recognised, to suffer, to be happy to come and be delivered over and killed. He comes into the world 
and chooses to die for us, to rescue us. That is going from a really high height, isn't it? Down to the lowest low, sinking down and down and down to the bottom of the heap, putting himself last to lift other people up. That is real greatness. That is why Jesus is the greatest. And that's what we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper, as we'll do later on. We're, we're commemorating that ultimate act of service for us when he gave up his life. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. That's Jesus, isn't it? We ought to praise him as the greatest and see that moment on the cross as the ultimate moment of greatness. But if we really do think that he's great, and if we really do think that's why he's great, we're going to want to be like him, won't we? We'll want to be great the way he's great, by serving. And that's what he calls us to do. After the, the first time he, he talked about his death like this, Jesus followed up by saying, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So he's saying, I am going down, 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 and I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me down. I want you to follow me to the back of the queue. And this whole section is illustrating what will that look like? What will it look like to follow him? To deny ourselves? Well, it's going to look like denying our selfish ambition that wants to be the greatest. It's denying our desire to be the best all the time and to be admired. Denying self-promotion and popularity and reputation. Are we willing to serve like that? We follow a dying king with an upside-down kingdom. So there's a challenge there, isn't there, for us? Say, okay, well, if we've been turned upside-down, are we serving? Are we deliberately organising our life around what other people need? It might not mean changing loads about what we do. It's certainly going to change why we do it, isn't it? As we change our attitudes. We change our approach to work and our relationships and our activities that we need to do. We come at that like a servant. That's a very different way of doing the same things. But serving might also mean that more needs to change now. There may be things that we're doing that are selfish, that are not serving other people. And we need to stop it. There might be ways that we talk about people and talk to people that need to change. There might be things we need to cut back on so we've got more time for other people. Whether that's formally saying, okay, I'd, I'd like a, a job, I want to sign up to do something in church. Or whether that's informally, just those sorts of loving one another you can't put on a road so that's so important to church life. Those things that don't get seen are we ready to serve there as well? So it is a challenge, isn't it? It's a real challenge. But I think there's an encouragement here as well. Because when you are serving, it can feel like a thankless task, can't it? It can feel like an uphill struggle. You're fighting against your own selfishness as well as other people's selfishness. We want an easy life, don't we? we want, it would be great to not have the burden of serving. But Jesus is encouraging us, isn't he? Yes, it seems completely insane sometimes. Why am I doing this? But 
But Jesus thinks it is great. It is really great. It is absolutely worth it to put yourself last, to put yourself last for the sake of other people. That is exactly the sort of thing he would do. So keep going. Greatness is serving. But there is another kind of danger there. We are very, very proud people. It's so deeply ingrained in us that even if we say, yep, I'm going to serve, we will find a way to do that in a way that makes us look good. I'm going to be the greatest servant you've ever seen. (laughs) We might be selective in who we serve so that we don't demean ourselves too much. Imagine two cleaners. You have one who cleans the public toilet in the car park. You have the other who cleans number 10 Downing Street. Who is greater? Most people would say the second one. They go, wow, scrubbing the Prime Minister's toilet. That's a bit special, isn't it? And suddenly, we're back thinking like the rest of the world again. We're talking about serving, but still it's like, ooh, you're, you're really, you know. We're judging greatness the way other people do. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it is. It's not how it is in his kingdom. In his upside-down kingdom, anyone is welcome. Anybody, everybody. You've got the world picking and choosing, having favourites, giving special treatment to certain people. And Jesus says, no, it shouldn't be like that. There is no elite group who deserves more or who get us more credit for serving them. Or if there are a group like that, It's not the people the world would choose. It's not the people we'd expect. So verse 36, he says he took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. He's turning everything upside down. Everybody that the world would value is not the same people Jesus values. The world values impressive people, outwardly great people. The world wants to weed out the weak ones. But with Jesus, anyone is welcome. And so we need to welcome them. We're not free to set a standard higher than God's standard and turf out people we don't like. We're not free to only serve some people. Jesus is so much more welcoming than we are. And so to make that point, he gets someone who would have been so completely not worth welcoming. He uses this example of a child. Now, we love children, within reason. Within reason. Our culture does love children. In some ways, we try and get rid of them, but otherwise, we're sentimental, aren't we? We're sentimental about childhood in a way that the ancient world never was. So the people of Jesus' day, children were a hassle. I'm sure they loved their own children, but they were a mouth to feed and they contribute nothing. If you give them a few years, they might start being useful. They'll eventually pull their own weight. They'll eventually even be able to look after you. But until then, they're a pain. They've got no status. They've got no protections. They can't do anything for you. And Jesus says, yeah, that's exactly the sort of person I want. It's so different, isn't it? That he has this love for people that nobody else cares about. And that's what it should be like for us in his kingdom as well. He gets this child, plonks them in the middle, and issues that challenge. Is this person welcome? Is this person who offers us absolutely nothing allowed to stay? 
Or are we going to push them away to focus on important people? When we welcome them, it's not just saying, oh, hi, welcome, you're, you're allowed to you know, be seen and not heard. This is about serving. This is how he applies that command to serve, doesn't he? To welcome is to serve them, to say, you are worth my time, you are worthy of my care, and then I'm actually going to care for you. We miss how radical this is, I think, in our child-centred world. But the only reason this makes sense is because our culture has been so shaped by the teaching of Jesus. This isn't a natural thing. This isn't something, when, if you go somewhere the gospel has not gone, gone, you won't see this. Genuinely serving the littlest and the weakest and the least. This isn't just about children, is it? It's about anybody who can't demand a place at the table. Anybody who can't buy their way in. It's making room for them. So for people who can't pay you back, who can't return the favour. When we welcome them in Jesus' name, we are welcoming Jesus, that's what he says. I quoted uh, Martin Luther quite a lot last week. I thought I'd go again. Uh, he said this, this is one of my favourite uh, Martin Luther quotes. He said, God does not need your good works, but your neighbour does. God does not need your good works, but your neighbour does. And it says, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, if you would like to serve me, if you would like to welcome me, go welcome them. Go serve them. By welcoming and serving them, we are serving him. It's such a challenge, isn't it, that Jesus comes humbly. Jesus made himself nothing. If we aren't willing to welcome nobodies, what makes us think we would have welcomed Jesus? If we only care about powerful people, important people, we wouldn't have time for someone like him. But when we welcome and serve the least, well, it's a sign we're getting it. It's a sign that we are welcoming Jesus. And that's the main thing. Welcoming Jesus is the thing. It's only through receiving Jesus we come into relationship with God the Father. That's what Jesus says. Whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So we need to welcome Jesus. We need to receive him if we want to know God. But the reality of whether we're doing that is going to be shown in how we welcome other people. Now again, Jesus is the great model for us, isn't he? Of the dying king. He didn't just serve. He didn't just serve nice people. He served people like us. The sinners and the Romans and the outcasts and the kids, the nobodies, the anybodies. Verse 42, just after our passage, look at how we're described. He says, one of these little ones, that is, those who believe in me. And those who believe in Jesus, we're the, we're the little ones. The child who gets plonked in the middle with no rights, nothing to offer. That's a picture of us. Um, when I was very little... We used to sing the song, Jesus Loves the Little Ones Like Me, Me, Me. Did you ever sing that one? Jesus loves the little ones like me, me, me. Little ones like me, such a pod is me. Jesus loves the little You should bring it in it to me. <laughs> I think that the realisation for me is that that is not a song about babies. When it says Jesus wants the little ones like me, apparently that is everyone who believes in him. We are the little ones. 
We don't grow out of that. We are people who are precious to him, and not because of what we bring to the party, because of how good we are, quite the opposite. He loves us despite how little we are, how little we bring to the table. So however overlooked you have been, however small you might have felt, Jesus loves the little ones like you, you, you. There is a second word for that, Tom. We are exactly the kind of people he came for, that he came to rescue, to care for, to bring home into his kingdom. And so when you've been loved like that, that will change you and it will turn you upside down. It's going to make us want to copy him, make us want to love other little ones. It's going to make us follow him, deny ourselves by getting rid of snobbery. No one's below his care. Anyone is welcome if only they'll believe in him. Now all of this talk about welcoming people jogs John's memory. He sort of goes, well, I wonder what happened the other day. So verse 38, teacher, says John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. We did the right thing, didn't we? I mean, we can't welcome everyone, can we? We've got to have some standards. What should he have done? Well, let's think about what his problem was. What was their problem with this guy? It wasn't who he claimed to serve. He was doing it in Jesus' name. So that's good. It wasn't what he was doing. He was driving out demons. Jesus was doing that. They've been trying to do that as well. It can't, that can't be their problem. What is their issue? It says, we told him to stop because he was not one of us. That's the only reason. He's not one of us. They think they've got the monopoly on Jesus, that they have got the exclusive distribution rights. Only we are allowed to do stuff in his name. That's what they think. And on one level, they were the twelve. They were on the middle of private tuition with Jesus. But he's very against their tribalism. He wants to stop them drawing the circle smaller and smaller until only they fit inside. Not everybody is part of his kingdom. But in principle, anyone is welcome. And so verse 39 is so shockingly generous, so shockingly hopeful, much more than the disciples were, when he said to them, do not stop him. Do not stop him, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Another generous approach. Whoever this person was, whatever they were doing, they were doing it in the name of Jesus. So they ought not to have dismissed that too easily. We should be discerning. Not everything that claims the name of Jesus is genuinely serving him. Not everything is equally helpful or should be equally encouraged and got behind. But this challenges us, doesn't it? It challenges our tendency to have an in-crowd and write off everybody else, to be suspicious, to be dubious about anybody not from our stable, especially if they're succeeding, especially if they're doing it where we're failing to do it. You see stuff going on and it, and it breaks the rules that we've set up, and somehow it's still thriving. How dare they? We resent it. We try to stop it. All too often, I think Christians can act as though 
no good can be done outside of their tribe. Wouldn't it be better if believers who aren't like us just didn't exist? We don't say that, <laughs> but sometimes we can act like that. Like our main enemy is Christians who do stuff differently to us. We tried to stop them because they weren't one of us. I remember going to a church where somebody claimed they were the only decent church within the M25. That's the whole of Greater London. They said this with a straight face. Yeah, really, we're, we're the only decent church within the M25. And you want to say, you're not even the only decent church in your postcode. There's a really good church just down the road. And one of the best things about them, they don't think they're the best church in the road. <laughs> so it's that attitude, that we told him to stop because he wasn't one of us. And Jesus seems to be saying, well, don't be so sure he's not one of us. Whoever is not against us is for us. The guy wasn't opposing us, leave him alone. More than that, he was claiming to be one of us, giving the benefit of the doubt. So sometimes Jesus flips the saying around. So in Matthew 12, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. So sometimes it's flipped the other way around, but they're not opposite each other. They're saying the same thing, that there are only two options. You are with Jesus or you are against Jesus. There isn't a neutral option. So if someone is refusing to join Jesus, well, they're rejecting him. But here we're getting the slightly more optimistic thing. Say, and if they're not opposed to me, well, then that's a really good thing. This guy had picked a team. He was driving out demons. He was doing it in Jesus' name. Well, good on him. More power to him. Don't stop him. In fact, he goes further. God will reward him and people like him. He says, whoever isn't against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. So if someone is for us, even in the loosest sense of that, like giving a cup of water, if someone's for us, God will reward them. Again, if you are a Christian, you should feel so loved by God, that he values us so highly, that he will reward people who help us. If, you, if somebody just gives you a cup of water because you belong to Christ, because you belong to the Messiah, I won't... Make, I'll make sure that doesn't go unrepaid because that is so important. We're so impressed with big things and miracles and driving out, blah, 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 blah. And God sees this tiny act of kindness and says, yeah, no, that's, that's what I love. I love that. I love that. <coughs> when it's done for Jesus. In this passage, welcoming children, driving out demons, giving a cup of water, all of those things are done in his name. And that's the important bit. What are we doing in his name? If we're going to follow him, we need to care less about our name and start doing things for the name of Jesus and in the name of Jesus. The disciples had it completely wrong, didn't they? They were stopping this man. They were stopping this man when they probably should have got him a drink, apparently. They were people who pushed outsiders further out and then wrestled with insiders to get to the top. That is not like Jesus at all, is it? Who takes outsiders in and then himself takes the lowest place. How could we reflect that more? How could we embrace that more? Recognise we are outsiders he has brought in. That is a wonderful thing. How can we welcome other 
people like us. Other people who don't seem to be like us. As a church, how could we do that? In nonsense land, everything was completely backwards. So the stupidest thing they could think of was a tree with green leaves. Just completely mad. What a ridiculous idea. And that's how it is with Jewish ways. Until we see things the right way up, the way he calls us to live will make no sense at all. So why don't we pray that we would be willing to see it that way, to see Jesus as the serving, dying king who calls us to live in that upside-down way as well. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for being that dying king. Thank you that you've served us, that you welcome us. We are sorry for our pride. We're sorry that we want to be great in the world's eyes. Help us to believe that greatness is really found in serving. Help us to follow you in the way that we serve and welcome other people. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.